Let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. It's on page 1002 in the church Bible. It's great to have Maranatha, our youth group, helping us in our worship today. It's great to hear them singing. I've had the chance of hearing them at both services, so I have a special treat today. Well, we're reading from Hebrews chapter 4, and we're coming to the end of a section in which the writer has been using the illustration of the history of the people of Israel and using that illustration of their history and applying it to the history of the church and the story of the church today. And his message really is summed up in a psalm that he quotes over and over again in chapters 3 and 4. And the key words are the words of the Holy Spirit, today if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. So in verse 11, having spoken about a rest that God had Himself and that He shares with His people. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of obedience. Here's the punch of His message. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is, as we were reminded at the beginning of the day, Palm Sunday. And on that first Palm Sunday, Jesus of Nazareth sent His disciples off to find a young donkey, full of a donkey. And on that donkey, Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives, across the brook Kedron, up the other side into the city of Jerusalem. There were many Galileans, people who knew Jesus because He'd spent so much of His ministry teaching and preaching in Galilee. They had been taught uh, by Him that He had come to be the King of Israel. That's the message they had received. Among them, there were Jesus' immediate followers, and these people followed Jesus down the hill and up into the city. And it's these people who are crying out, Hosanna, save us. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And as this happens, the words of Scripture are being fulfilled. John makes that point. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they understood. Then they remembered these things. Now, thinking of that Palm Sunday, thinking of how it is that the Word of God was fulfilled, everything that Jesus did, every step He took that day, and in the days that followed up until the day He was arrested and then crucified, even as He's hanging on the cross, every step He took, the Word of God was being fulfilled. Now, what a morning then, when we consider that, when we consider the events of Holy Week, for us to begin this Holy Week by thinking of the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active. 
This is a transition point in Hebrews from considering, as we did in chapter 1, Jesus as the eternal Son of God who is God, who shares the identity of the God of Israel, to Jesus in His humanity in chapters 2 and 3 and 4, Jesus who comes into the world as the great prophet of our God to speak the Word of God to us. And now we're going to transition to considering next time, not next Sunday, but next time we're in Hebrews, Jesus as our great high priest. And what better transition point than this for the Word of God, the Word of God that's been being quoted over and over again since chapter 1. The Word of God is living and active. Our minds immediately think of Scripture because Hebrews is loaded with references to Scripture. Even if you're new this morning and you have your Bible open, if you just turn the page to chapter 1 and you look at the quotations there, that they, they, particularly those that are in poetic form, they stand out, they scream at you from the page, and it underlies the, the amount of Scripture that has been quoted in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4. And yet this Word of God, do you notice in verse, in verse 13, has a personal quality to it. Do you notice it's talking about the Word of God, and then immediately he goes on and says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So there's seemingly clarity about what is going on here, and yet a certain degree of ambiguity about what's going on in the text here. We mustn't be afraid of that. So I have four points this morning. I hope to unpack what I think is the depth of this text by pointing us, first of all, to God's Word and God's speech. God has been presented in Hebrews as a speaking God. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This idea of God speaking is something that leaps from the page of the Bible right from day one. You go right back to the very, very beginning, Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1, and, and so on. And there you find God speaking, and He said, let there be light, and there was light. And He said, let us make man in our image. In creation, this idea that God spoke everything that there is into being by the very word of His power is all over the Bible. In Psalm 33, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Why? Because He spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God spoke creation into being. You look at the story of the Bible, and you follow the lines of the story, and you discover that history, especially the history of Israel, history unfolds according to the Word of God. Samuel, for example, one of the chief of, of the prophets, the first of, the, of a line of prophets, not the first of prophet, but the first of a line of prophets in the Bible, comes to King Saul, the first king of Israel, and delivers this message to him. Samuel says to him, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and 
The Lord has rejected you from your being king over Israel. The whole history of Israel is governed by, dictated by, superintended by, spoken into being by the Word of God. God even associates His very being with the Word of God. Is God everywhere? He sends out His command throughout the earth. His Word runs swiftly. Wherever God is, there His Word is. Wherever God goes, there the Word goes. Wherever God is, there the Word is. He personifies His Word and His wisdom. He puts those together and they're personified in in Proverbs. For whoever finds me, says the Word, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. He who fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me will love death. Here is the Word of God and the wisdom of God personified, speaking as God. You find the Word and wisdom of God, you find God. You reject the Word and wisdom of God, you reject God, and you lose God. Or in the words of another psalm, you have exalted above all things, your name and your word. The name stands for the very being and nature and character of God, and your word that declares the very nature and the being and the character of God. Now, this word, this word of God is called here living and active. It is a living word. Thomas Aquinas Uh, puts it like this. He says, a thing is called living when it has its own movement and activity. For as a gushing fountain is called living, so too this Word has eternal vigor. It's a living, vibrant thing. And he quotes from Psalm 118, forever, O Lord, Your Word stands firm in the heavens. And again, he says, similarly, the Word of Scripture is living and unfailing, not as though one Word of God ever miscarried. It is a living Word. And that's why Jesus, when He's on earth, accuses the people of His day for taking the tradition of men and raising the tradition of men to an equal status alongside the Word of God. On this Reformation anniversary, 500th anniversary this year of the Reformation. That was one of the issues, wasn't it, at the time of the Reformation, elevating the traditions of men to the level of Holy Scripture. And Jesus challenged the men of His own day, for for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the Word of God. That's His great charge against the people of His day. The Word of God, when you consider it as the Word that God speaks, His own speech, found in Holy Scripture, the Word of God shares something of the nature of God. The Word of God is living, it says. God is the living God. So the nature of the divine speaker carries over to His Word. So, what you can say about God, you can say about His Word. The Bible says about God, He is the living and enduring God. 
The Word of God is the living and enduring Word of God. God is true. The Word of God is true. God cannot lie. The Word of God cannot lie. God is without error. Scripture is without error. He is the author of Scripture. As Paul puts it, all Scripture is breathed out by God. So what is the phrase, the Word of God, teaching us there? It is teaching us that the God who made us is a God who wants to communicate with us. He speaks to us. He has made us creatures that are able, most of us, to be on the receiving end of language and of speech. We hear things. This is enacted, isn't it, in Christian worship. We sit and we hear the Word of God being spoken to us because God wants us to understand that this Word, which you're hearing from a human living voice, is the living Word of God. He uses a human object as an object lesson. It's the living voice of God being spoken to you. The Word of God is being addressed to the people of God. And this communication comes, so Scripture tells us, from God through the prophets. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In the New Testament, through the holy apostles. And what was spoken has been written and remains the Word of God in Holy Scripture. It has magisterial authority over the church. In our church, the way in which our church is governed is through a session of elders that have been appointed to govern the church. But theirs is not a magisterial authority. Theirs is a ministerial authority. They serve under the magisterial authority of the Word of God. We Christian people, all of us, live under the magisterial Word of God in every age. Now, what do I mean when I say the Word of God? Am I thinking of God absolutely, in absolute terms? God as one. God as the triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yes, the Word is the Word of the triune God. But even if you think relatively, supposing you think relatively of God, God as He is as the Father, the Lord Jesus in John chapter 17 speaks to His Father about the Word, and He says to His Father, your Word is truth. And the truth of God, the living truth of God, takes on the nature of the God who speaks it. God is living. The Word of God is living. What does that mean for us? It means this, that these holy Scriptures are not outdated dead speech. They are not simply artifacts of a bygone day and age. These Scriptures, because they are the, ris- the voice of the, of the living God of the universe, exist with dynamic force, a force that we must reckon with. That's what this passage is teaching us. For this Word is living and active. That is, it is doing something. It is at work. It is, it is achieving something. It is effecting things. It is carrying out God's intentions 
in the world and in our lives. The very same word spoken at creation that brings cosmos out of chaos. That word, that word that is spoken and life is breathed into the creatures that God has made and they become living souls. That living and effective word is at work in the world. The Word of God and God's speech. God is a speaking God. Now, whenever we contemplate God is revealed in Scripture, we have to be very careful, especially when we're reading the Old Testament, not to ascribe the name God or Lord to one or other of the three persons that, we come, that we're introduced to in the New Testament, because the same name, God and Lord, applies to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit equally. Every topic of theology, however, compels us to examine the Trinitarian depths, and this topic of the Word of God is one that we must examine in its Trinitarian depths, because the Father speaks through the Word who is the Son by the Holy Spirit to us. If you're interested in In studying the Trinity, I recommend to you anything that Fred Sanders has written. Fred Sanders writes this in a post recently, the sending Father is available to us, active towards us, and engaged with us through the twofold mission of the Son and the Spirit. We don't look to the sky for the return of the Father. We look to the sky for the return of Jesus. Professor Sanders goes on to quote from Irenaeus of Leon, one of the early church fathers, who uses this homey illustration of the Father's sending of the Son and the Spirit. He talks about the Father's two hands. Irenaeus puts it like this, God the Father is never without His two hands, the Son and the Spirit. And what Irenaeus is doing is he's drawing our attention to the one God who acts towards us in our creaturely reality by using His two hands, the Son and the Spirit. So, he's trying to describe for us, using this illustration, the unity of God, He is one, and yet the differentiated unity of God, He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? If you understand it, then you're God. <laughs> of course you don't understand it. It's okay not to understand it. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches, because, and it's beyond me, and it's beyond you, because it's beyond us as creatures to comprehend the Creator. So, God's Word and God's speech. Now, bearing in mind what I've just said, that God reveals Himself through the two that He sent on mission to us. Let's take these one by one. Secondly, my second point is God's Word and God's Spirit. I've already said that there's no doubt there's a reference here to Scripture, but there's more. When we read about the Word of God, there's more than just a reference to Scripture here. That is the written Word of God. We said earlier, we quoted those words, all Scripture is God-breathed. And we can't use that without thinking, immediately thinking, 
about the one who is the mighty, mighty breath of God, the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you look at this string of Bible quotations that the author has already used, you need to run back in your Bibles back to verse 7 of chapter 3 and find how they were introduced. How were they introduced in verse 7? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. In other words, the Scriptures that we hold, the words of the prophets and the words of the apostles, are in fact words which the Holy Spirit says. Even when Jesus sends messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor that are recorded in the book of Revelation, after the message is delivered, at the end of each of the messages, the Lord Jesus says, this is what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, you think about it. Again, look at the, the language that's used here. The Word of God is living. We can say, use this word living of the Lord God of Israel, who is Himself the ever-living one. We've noticed that before. Numbers 14, as I live, says the Lord. If you read the book of Daniel again and again, Daniel's phrase for God, the God of heaven and earth, is that He is the living God. Nebuchadnezzar says it, and, and, uh, and others say it, to distinguish God from the dead idols, the idols that people parked on their front lawn or in the sanctuary. God is the living God. He's not tied to any space or place. In the Gospels, when Peter is uh, affirming that Jesus is the Messiah, he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Here's the characteristic of God to have life, and it's the characteristic of the Son of God to have life. He has life in Himself. And it's the characteristic of the Holy Spirit that He is life. He is called the life-giving Spirit. He's also called elsewhere the Spirit of life. And wherever the Spirit of God is, through the Word of God, He brings life to bear. He brings resurrection life to bear upon us. He takes people who are dead to God and makes them alive to God. He takes people who have no love for God and creates love for God in their heart. He takes people who have no faith in God and He creates faith. He gives the gift of faith and creates it within those people. He is the Spirit of life. He is the, the Lord and the life giver. And when it says that the Holy Spirit, that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword… What does the Bible tell us? Well, it tells us in, the, in Ephesians chapter 6 that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit who uses the Bible. It's His book. This is what you are hearing, going back to chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, whenever you're under the Word of God, whenever you're hearing the Word of God being preached, the Holy Spirit is very present, very active. I mean, he was the one who gave us the Bible in the first place. As Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, when he promises his disciples, the apostles, that they will become the vehicles of the message that he 
wants to give them, and they'll remember the things that He's said, and they'll be led into further truth. What is it that He promises them? He says, I'll send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth to you, and He will guide you. He will guide you into all truth. So, we have to say that the Holy Spirit is always present where the Word of God is present. It is His Word. He breathes it. He, he, reenacts, he reenacts this, doesn't He? In, that, in the church of God, he has, he has given central place in the worship of the church to the proclamation of the Word of God. What is, what is happening when the Word of God is being preached is that you have a visual aid of the work of the Holy Spirit as the words are breathed out over you. Some of you are in a good position. You're just far enough away not to be sprayed on while they're being breathed out, so you're okay. But as the Word of God is being spoken and breathed out, you've got a visual aid of what is happening with the Word of God. God is breathing out His Spirit. His Spirit is active alongside, in, with the Word of God to accomplish the purpose of God. But I have a third point. We've seen God's Word and God's speech, God's Word and God's Spirit. Thirdly, God's Word and God's Son. Because if you read the Fathers, and if you read some of the Reformers, especially people like John Owen, for Presbyterians and Congregationalists, and John Gill for the Baptists, along with the Church Fathers, they would take the position that the Word of God here is in fact the Son of God. So, I don't want to contradict them. I want to agree with them. And this morning, I, I, I got up very early this morning, it dawned on me that, that I think Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, might have preached on this text. And I took it down, and I looked at it, and I thought, bingo. Spurgeon agrees with me. He obviously knew what I was going to do this morning. He, seriously. Uh, and and uh, so, he, he, he thinks, as I think, that we're meant to see the fullness of this. The tr- we're sounding the Trinitarian depth of the text. If God the Father has life in Himself, Jesus says, He has given the Son to have life in Himself. What does that mean? It means that whatever God is, the Son is, except that He's not the Father. Everything that God is, except that He's not the Father. So, when we think of the Son of God as the eternal God, then we can say about Him, He is life. In Him is life. He is the Word of God. He is living. But not only in His divine nature is He living, but in His human nature. Thomas Aquinas, again, I'm quoting from that medieval theologian, he puts it like this, it can be referred also to His human nature, for it is living. Though others may regard it as dead, he rose no more to die. And he quotes from Revelation 1, where Jesus says, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. By His very nature, not only as God, but as His human nature, He is the resurrection and the life. He is resurrection and life. He is the Prince of life. Before he rode into Jerusalem, 
He had been at the graveside, you remember, of Lazarus, a friend of his who died. And you remember what he did? He called Lazarus by name, Lazarus, come forth. Why did he say Lazarus? Supposing just for a second Jesus had forgotten Lazarus' name. And supposing he had just said to the dead, come forth. Do you know what would have happened? All of the dead everywhere would have come forth. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to say to the dead, come forth, and all the dead, the godly and the ungodly, the righteous and the unrighteous, the believing and the unbelieving will rise, either to life or to judgment. He is resurrection, and He is life. He is living. That's why John begins his gospel talking about Christ as the Word and saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life. In Him was life. As the living one, Jesus has authority to give you life. He has authority from the Father to give eternal life to all the Father has given to Him. And Jesus, as the Word of God, is active. This word, active, comes from the Greek word meaning energy. That's the, Greek, the, uh, the English form of the Greek word, energy. It denotes strength and effectiveness. It, it means, in John Owen's words, actual power. Power in act. Power enacted. Power effective in its operation. It's the power of God that is at work in you as a believer to will and to do of His good pleasure. It's the, work, work, it's the work of God that Paul refers to, which is that work in you, believer, the powerful working of God. The Son is active in the Word of God as the Word of God. As the incarnate Word, He is active in the inspired Word to work in you, to bring you to Himself, to show you who He is. He is the subject and the object. The Holy Spirit wants to get you to Jesus. So, fourthly, I want you to notice that the, word, the relationship between the Word of God and God's speech and God's Spirit and God's Son, and now I want you to see the connection between the Word of God and God's simplicity. We've talked about this before. Let me just remind you that in our confession, in our catechism, we remind ourselves that God is without body or parts or passions. There are no bits to God. When we, when we call God Trinity, we are not saying, as somebody said to me recently, you know, I've always thought that when we talk about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're talking about three people. We're not talking about three people. The church has never used that language because the church knows once you say there are three people, you're saying there are three gods. And the Bible says there's only one God. And the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, though they can be distinguished by their relations to each other, that's all that distinguishes them. In every other particular, they are identical in their being and in their attributes, and in their character, 
and God always acts as one in His actions towards us. Always. Though that action may end with one or other of the two persons, the Son, the son or the Spirit, if you like, at the front end of the action, God is acting as one. So, the Word of God, which we've seen is of God, and we've seen is by the Spirit, is front-ended by Christ who is the incarnate Word, who fulfills the Word of God in Himself. And here's what we're told about God's simplicity here, God acting as one. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. Whether you're thinking of the gift of the Trinity as a whole or the work of the Spirit or the Word of Christ, you think of Christ, and when John sees Him in the apocalypse as resurrected and exalted, it says, using the symbolic language, from His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, fulfilling the promise made uh, in uh, Isaiah chapter 49, where the servant of the Lord who's coming into the world to bear our sins and die for us on the cross says, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. And then at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 19, when it's describing the return of Christ, it uses this kind of highly symbolic language. It says, His name is the Word of God. Coming out from His mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. God acts. God acts through His Word that is like a sharp, two-edged sword. Do you see what we mean by this? The Word of God cuts this sword has no blunt sides. It has two sharp edges. The revelation of God given in Scripture is edge all over. The Word of God, like a sword, is about the business in the life of the believer of doing what? How does God use His Word in the life of the believer but to kill sin there is no sin killer like the Word of God. It sets about us, week in and week out, addressing the issues in our lives, slicing up and cutting through all of the hypocrisy and all of the walls we raise in order that it might kill sin dead in our hearts. The sword of the Spirit that's the Word of Christ and the Word of God and the Word of the Spirit, this sword, this Word... Jesus says He'd come into the world not to bring peace, but a sword, that sword that, that, that cuts and divides people, divides humanity, it divides families between those who believe and those who don't believe, those who love the Lord and those who don't love the Lord. It is a divisive word. It cuts. But it's not only a cutting, slicing sword. It's a rapier. It pierces. You notice the language here of piercing. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That means the gospel will find its way wherever it needs to get, to get into your heart, 
to get down deep into your spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is going deeply into our personality. Does it can counter prejudice? The Word of God is able to slice through the prejudice that is in our hearts. Does it encounter hardness, rock-solid hardness? Don't be afraid if you're thinking there's someone in your family who's so rock-solid hard to the gospel that the Word of God is impenetrable. The Word of God pierces even the rock-solid hardness that we, that we build up against its truth. The Word of God pierces. It gets where it needs to get to the very depths of our personality to do its work. And it's discriminating, this Word of God. This Word of God discriminates between the division of the joints and marrow and so on. It discriminates between the natural and the spiritual, between the godly and the ungodly, and the dead and the living, and the believing and the unbelieving. It shows us what, what is real and what isn't real. The Word of God as it's held up to us at times. It shows us that our hearts are not where they ought to be. It discriminates. I, I just think about, about the, the, the way in which the Word of God has worked with me in my life. It, I, it's wrestled with me. It smiles at me. It's smitten me. It's clasped my hand. It's warmed my heart. The Word of God sings with me. It, it weeps with me. It whispers to me. It preaches to me. It maps out my life. The Word of God does exactly what God sends it to do. And it's revealing this Word. This Word is a revealing Word, this Word that comes from God. It reveals the thoughts and the intents of the heart. As I sit under the Word of God, the Word of God says to me, you know, that's a selfish thought. The Word of God says to me, that's a charitable thought. The Word of God says to me, that's a Christ-like attitude. That is an unchrist-like attitude. It discerns and reveals to us the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, that's scary in some ways, isn't it? In other ways, it's comforting. Because there will always be people, you see, who question your motives, question your intentions, who wonder why you did this, why you made that choice, why you said this thing. They will misrepresent it in their heads. They may even misrepresent you to other people. They will misread your actions. They will misread your gestures. They will misread the tone of your voice. And it is the most comforting thing at those times when you cannot defend yourself to come to this text and know that the Word of God knows the thoughts and the intents of my heart. And many a time, I have to come to this text. I've come to this text, and I've said, Lord, I know you know this. And on the judgment day, I can wait for then, for these to be exposed. The Word of God. And do you see what it says in verse 12? No creature is hidden from His sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And that's said of God absolutely. It's said of God 
relatively as the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's said of God's Word totally. We are naked and exposed. There is nothing that is beyond the impact of the Word of God. Here you are today. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian person. Here you are at the beginning of Holy Week, and we've talked about that that day back on that first Palm Sunday when this, these Galileans were heading up to the city, and they were thrilled to be there as Jesus is coming down the hill, and they remember His teaching, and they follow Him down along with His disciples. And they're crying out these things, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're, here are the people of Jerusalem. They're, they're looking on. They're observing what's going on. They're listening in to what's being cried out, these people of Jerusalem. And what was happening that Palm Sunday is exactly what's happening in this room this morning. You are listening in. You are observing. As we've been singing the praises of Him whom we love, as we've been exalting Him in our thoughts, with our voices, as we've been adoring Him, and as we've been telling you that He is the one of whom the Scripture speaks. Jesus said to some people once, you read the Scriptures because in them you think you will find life. These Scriptures speak about me, but you will not come to me, and therefore you will not find life. On this Palm Sunday, as we remember those men and women who gathered around Jesus and walked down the hill, who believed in Him, who welcomed Him, who greeted Him, who proclaimed Him. We think of those other people, the people of Jerusalem, looking on, listening in. And they had to make a choice that day. Were they going to welcome Him as their Messiah, like these Galileans did? Were they going to receive Him as those crowds that put their palm branches before Him had? Were they going to say to Him, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, hallelujah, hallelujah, hosanna, save me, save me. Will they cry out to Jesus to save them? And by Good Friday, they're crying out, crucify Him. Crucify Him. They made their choice. They would not believe what that crowd of people believed. And today you must make your choice. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you rest on Him for your salvation? Will you trust in Him? for your salvation. Will you join us at this, at this table as those who know and love the Lord Jesus and have a share in the salvation Jesus came to provide, salvation that's typified in the bread and the wine as we take it together and eat it and drink together as a sign of His salvation? Will, will you join us here as believers? Will you? Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would take Your Word this morning. Thank You for the Holy Spirit who always accompanies it and who always brings us to Jesus. We pray that by Your help and by the Holy Spirit, we would be today comforted and challenged and above all brought to Him who alone can save us. We pray in His strong name. Amen.